Great to see so many of you here, and thanks to those of you who are online. Uh, a couple quick reminders as we get going in terms of the sermon today. If uh, you're here with young kids, we're so thankful that you've uh, braved the elements and really glad uh, that you're coming out. Um, there is a building in the preschool, there's a room in the preschool building open if you feel the need to go change a diaper or just have a moment of of running around, uh, then you can go out these doors to your left, over to the preschool building, and then the northernmost room in that building is open. And then additionally, at the end of uh, this gathering today, we'll be uh, filming another sermon Q&A. So if you have any questions that come up during the message and want to text those in, then please feel free to do that. We'd love to spend a little bit of time recording that, and then later in the week, you'll be able to pull that up online. If you're new with us, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and it'll be my great privilege to spend time with you today in Acts 20. So if you brought a Bible, would you turn with me there to Acts chapter 20? And uh, if you're using one of those blue Bibles from the back, we are on page 542 uh, in those Bibles. If you're new with us, our habit every Sunday morning is to open the Scriptures and work our way through a passage by passage through books of the Bible. We believe that it's in God's Word that we can hear what He would have to say to us today and that His Word is good and always tells us the truth. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, which covers about three decades of time after Jesus' resurrection, and it recounts how the gospel spread all over the ancient world throughout the Roman Empire, and it continues to teach us today how God works and what He does as people hear His Word. Last Sunday morning, we thought about what prompted the riot in the great city of Ephesus in Acts 19. And we discovered that we Christians are people who do want to see many people in a city come to know Jesus. And the way people come to know Jesus is not through force or coercion, but it's as the Word of God is heard, and people trust Christ, and therefore they experience the explosive power of new and better affections, affections and joy in, in the Lord. Today, we'll consider what happened after that riot dissipated, both in Ephesus and then beyond, as we cover the next several months, as Paul did ministry elsewhere. So if you would follow along with me, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and de departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through the regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristocrus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Thank you. I practiced this morning with the ESV Audio Bible. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. 
But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, at first glance, these verses, which form the first half of what we'll be studying together this morning, may seem rather boring. The mob dissipated, Paul left, he traveled with some guys with weird names, and they all ended up at Troas. The famous show uh, Seinfeld would have characterized this passage as a yada, yada, yada passage. It doesn't seem like much is here, but we know that there is no wasted word in the Bible. It's all inspired by God and therefore is good and right and true and helpful. And so let's take a closer look at it together. Perhaps the first issue that stands out as you let your eyes glance back over that paragraph is that Paul traveled a lot. Travel in the ancient world was both dangerous and arduous. Dangerous because you were often alone. Arduous because you traveled almost everywhere by foot. Horses were too expensive for most people, and so it was very, very slow to get around. But despite the difficulties of traveling, Paul made his way all across the ancient world. We've been learning throughout the book of Acts how the, the gospel message started in the city of Jerusalem, but within the span of a few decades, you could legitimately claim that the gospel had been heard in every major city around the Roman Empire. On this particular trip, Paul's intent was to go to Jerusalem, but he traveled first back to the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, which we would call today Greece. The question is why? Why go back through when it's difficult to travel? Why go back through all these cities and spend time there again? Well, if we read across the New Testament and put the pieces together, we can safely indicate there were two reasons, both of which are significant and helpful to us. Two reasons for this trip. Number one, to encourage the Christians. Now, we'll talk the most about that because it's what the book of Acts emphasizes. However, when we piece the evidence together from other books in the Bible, we know there was a second reason for this trip. And the second reason was to take up an offering. I want to spend a few minutes together thinking about that. By relying on several other books in the New Testament, we can construct a timeline that fills in the gaps not emphasized here in Acts. Several of you are taking notes. You might write down a couple of passages to look at later. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 1 to 7, and Romans 15. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 1 to 7, and Romans 15. In those three passages, we find that on this trip, Paul was set out, Paul set out to collect a special offering from the largely Gentile churches to take back to the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem. A famine in Jerusalem collided with persecution of these Christians. And so this very first church in the city of Jerusalem was experiencing tremendous suffering. Practically speaking, they struggled for the basics of physical life. One of Paul's major ministry endeavors was to raise money to take back to that church. 
Now, this passage reveals that, these passages reveal that Paul had more in mind, though, than just meeting physical needs. You see, the gospel had reverberated out from the city of Jerusalem. The good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension had come first to the Jews and only then to the Gentiles. You see, Jesus was, was a Jewish Messiah who preached a Jewish gospel. Yes, he brought a global kingdom, but that came about through promises originally made to Israel. And in Revelation 21, if we want to look ahead, we know that when Jesus returns, a new Jerusalem will come down, transforming the world as we now know it. And in that city, we will dwell with God and God's people forever. That kingdom that began as a Jewish kingdom is now a universal kingdom made up of some from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Now, what does that have to do with money? Well, it turns out quite a bit. In the book of Romans, for example, we learn this. Romans was written during that three-month period of time we just read about. Romans 15 says this, At present... I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They are pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. It's interesting. Paul's rationale seems to be that The Gentiles knew the gospel and were included among the people of God precisely because the Jews had taken the gospel outside the city of Jerusalem. If the Gentiles received spiritual blessings from the Jews, then the Gentiles ought to return material blessings as a way of giving thanks and expressing solidarity and unity. This was a project Paul invested significant time and effort in. I think a reason for this is because it demonstrated the unity of a global church. If a church is willing to give money to another church, if Christians are willing to give money to other Christians, particularly Christians they never see, who are quite different from them in terms of our worldly lives, then that says much to the world and much to the churches about the unity we have in Christ. As a church, we spend quite a bit of time and money and effort on laboring to help other churches. And this passage gives us one of the reasons why we do that. It expresses not only the compassion that Christ has shown us, but it expresses the unity that we all have in Jesus Christ. Now, if you do a bit of research, all of these folks listed in verses 4 and 5 are representatives of the various churches that Paul traveled back around to and collected this offering. At least six churches are represented in these names. What a beautiful picture of churches helping churches. Not only did these churches give for their own church, but they gave to help the Christians in Jerusalem. 
This list of names also shows us the deeply relational nature of Christianity. To be saved by Christ out of condemnation and welcomed back into a right relationship with God is also to be welcomed into restored relationships with other people who know God. The Bible even uses familial language to capture the very heart of this. So church, look around. Every person you see here, everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you can legitimately call brother or sister. And those aren't mere words. That's the truth. It expresses something of the depth of love and support and care and connection that we have with one another. Now, as interesting as all of this is, it's not actually what Acts emphasizes. There's another reason for this trip that Luke, the human author of the book of Acts, chose to press home. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you'll find a word repeated in both of those verses. It's the word encourage or encouraging. That's the other reason for this trip. Paul went back to the churches he started in order to encourage them. Now, encouragement is a rather odd topic today. Unfortunately, we've come to believe perhaps that encouragement doesn't mean much. In an age when every kid gets a trophy for merely participating, an encouragement is often nothing more than hollow platitudes. It's possible we've lost our grip on what it actually is. A few days ago, I did a Google search for the word encouragement, and interestingly, the first thing that came up were some images. I selected a few of the first ones to show you. Here's the first one that came up. You are amazing. You are brave. You are strong. Now, the second, believe in you. And the third, you only, your problems only hang around because you won't let go of them. Oh, Friends, are those the kinds of things when you think of encouragement? When verses 1 and 2 say that Paul encouraged the churches, you can't possibly mean that he came with little plaques that said things like that. Because that's not encouragement at all. In and of ourselves, none of those things are true. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because in encouragement is actually something very important. It's what Paul went to these churches to do. Biblical encouragement is a certain kind of comfort and exhortation. It's a comfort that strengthens and calls for renewed commitment. Let me say that again. I think we can grow in this as a church. It's a comfort that strengthens and calls for renewed commitment. And so encouragement in that sense isn't so much let me thank you for something you did, but rather, let's look ahead 
to new things that are still to come. What does that kind of encouragement do? One author I read this week put it this way, the purpose of encouragement is that we may be strengthened for fresh faith and obedience. Friend, think back to a time, probably lately, this has not been the smoothest year, think back to a time when you were down in the dumps and recall to mind the words that a fellow Christian shared with you. Those words were the means that the Spirit used to help you press on. That's encouragement. It's truth-telling for the purpose of comfort that calls for obedience. Beloved, that kind of encouragement is an essential duty we have towards one another as a church family. It's a privilege that we're to exercise often. In fact, Hebrews chapter 3 says we're to do it every day. Hebrews 3 verses 12 and 13 put it this way, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily, as long as it's called today, so that you, none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Church, we're to encourage each other to stick with Jesus. Why? Because the world is rough. Our hearts are fickle. We're endlessly innovative with sin. Anxieties are rampant. Satan is at work. We must encourage each other. Church member, this is an essential part of your God-given job description that you would make it your habit to encourage one another. Now, how specifically do we do that? Well, there are lots and lots and lots of ways. But let's put the question slightly differently. When Paul went to encourage these churches, what did he do? That would be the closest application for us. Well, Hebrews, again one of many books in the Bible that gives us the answer to that kind of question, says in chapter 10 this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. How? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near meaning the day that Jesus returns. Verse 24 indicates that we're to positively provoke, to sharpen, to stir each other up towards love and good deeds by not neglecting the church gathering, but instead by meeting regularly to encourage one another. Due to our experience this year with COVID, we went months being unable to do what we're doing right now. There's nothing like hearing each other sing to God, seeing hands lifted up in praise, sitting together under the Word of God, looking around at fellow brothers and sisters with their Bibles open, praying together, visiting afterwards. This is designed by God to be a primary means of encouragement. 
to help us look ahead to the coming week with fresh eyes of faith. So it should be no surprise then that the next paragraph in the book of Acts recounts what happened at a church gathering. So let's look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Now, the them is the church that met in the city of Troas. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Hope you brought a snack, because we're going to do that too. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Oops. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the, way, the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now the last word in that paragraph, the word comforted, in the Greek text, which is what this was originally written in, is the same exact word as the word encouragement or encouraging in verses 1 and 2. And so the passage begins with encouragement and it ends with encouragement. It begins with Paul encouraging the churches, and it ends with the church in Troas encouraged. Now, what brought about that encouragement? Well, it wasn't platitudes. No, it was the gathered church. As the church came together as the church, the assembled body, they heard the gospel. They took the Lord's Supper. Because our Lord Jesus rose from the grave, we get together on Sundays, and each week starts not with work, but with worship. We meet together because Jesus conquered the grave. We meet to honor God and encourage each other. We meet because we have a desperate need to hear the gospel yet again. We meet to stir each other up towards love and good deeds. This Christian we must not neglect. I'm encouraged this morning that there's so many here. And many of you are young. You're just beginning that stage in life in which you're deciding for yourself, am I going to follow God? Am I going to prioritize the people of God? If you'll make that commitment now, it will bear fruit the rest of your life. Both fruit in your own life and fruit as you bless others. Church, I'm concerned that while the pandemic has helped some of us appreciate the gathered church more, it simultaneously presented others with the unwanted opportunity to develop the poor habit of sporadic involvement. If you have the time, health, and energy to do one thing in the week, and most of us are blessed to have a lot more energy than that, but if you can only pick one thing to do in the week outside of your home, let it be the gathering with your church. 
God has so ordained this means of comfort and challenge for every Christian. As we seek to cling to Christ and Christ holds on to us, part of the essential truth that God has given us that that would happen is that we be together. Podcasts, books, private conversations, these are all good and helpful, but they're no substitute for what can only happen when the church is assembled. There's nothing like standing and singing and looking across the room and seeing someone who you know is going presently through hardship. And yet with tears in her eyes, she's singing to our God. There's nothing like knowing that in the room there are people who are of different color. And yet together we're equals, sitting as brothers and sisters with open Bibles and open lives. There's nothing like the conversations that happen afterwards as we ask what's coming up this week and we commit to pray and to follow up. These are things that only happen together. Now, in addition to receiving encouragement from the Word, there's also probably here the Lord's Supper. It's likely that if you look in verses 7 and 11, when it speaks of breaking bread, it's probable that this meant as the church was together, they recalled to mind what Jesus did for them. They remembered His death. They thought back to the forgiveness of sins. They looked forward to the return of Christ all by observing the Lord's Supper. Originally, as you can see here, if that's indeed what this is talking about, this included a meal. And as part of that meal with the gathered church, they would take a moment to remember with bread and cup Jesus' death. The Lord's Supper or communion is a, a physical, tangible way through which we remember that God has united us to each other in Christ. The bread being broken brings to mind the broken body of Jesus and pictures our unity in Him as one body broken. And the cup calls to mind the shed blood of our Savior. Next week, Lord willing, we will be observing the Lord's Supper during both gatherings. We haven't done this since the pandemic began. So I want to encourage you right now to decide you'll be here next week. And if you're watching online... I want to encourage you to consider coming. The Lord is present with His people, in particular as we remember His death and the unity we have in the supper. Now, this is the normal pattern of the gathered church. We sing, we pray, we give, we listen to the preached word, we take the Lord's Supper. But that's not all that happened in that church meeting in Troas. Something very, very unusual actually happened. When the church and the team assembled in Troas, they, they were likely crammed in a small room. Now, it would have been someone's house, and comparatively speaking, it was probably a large room, large enough that you could gather the whole church there. But with people smashed in, 
And the text tells us with torches lit. Paul preached late into the night. And poor Eutychus. Have you ever been in a hot room when someone talks too long? It's bound to happen. Eutychus lost the fight. He climbed up on the windowsill, which would have been just an open space, to get some fresh air. But when he fell asleep, he fell over backwards. Now, as a preacher, I've seen my fair share of people nodding off in church. One guy, I, who was a church member for almost a decade, I'm absolutely certain he fell asleep every single Sunday. His record is without equal. I've seen people fall asleep so significantly that they've fallen over on the person next to him. I've seen other people fall asleep and hit their head on the seat in front of them. But one thing I've never seen is someone fall to their death. Death by sermon <laughs> is a hard way to go. Now, the irony here is the name Eutychus means fortunate. The fortunate one had a rather unfortunate spill. Why in the world is this in the Bible? Remember that what we have in the Bible is not an exhaustive history. This isn't designed to tell us everything that happened. And that makes the selection of what God chose to include very important. So why this weird story about a youth falling asleep when this is not an uncommon thing? Well, friends, it's here to show us, to remind us that God has power over everything. God has power even over life and death. Just as God brought Tabitha back to life, through Peter in Acts 9. Just as Jesus bought back the centurion servant, the widow's son, and Lazarus. And much earlier, in the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, just as Elijah and Elisha brought people back from the dead, here, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Eutychus came back. If you add up all the times in the Bible that this happened, and the Bible covers a span of thousands of years, then it's less than 10 times this happened. It's very unusual. It's not normal. Not something we should expect today. But it did happen. It did happen through apostles and prophets and Jesus himself. The point is not a moment of levity. The point is to show us that God, God and God alone has the power over life and death. That thing that we most can't control, God is able to. God is the Lord of life and death. Therefore, all people everywhere ought to turn to Him for life. A return to physical life is a sort of living parable of being born again or, or finding yourself spiritually dead and then spiritually alive. You see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what Eutychus coming back was meant to point to. 
We Christians believe that Jesus died the death sinners deserve to die. On a hill outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. And as he slowly suffocated to death, all the sins of all of God's people for all of time were placed upon him. As the perfect one, he was sufficient to die, to die as our substitute. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The just wrath of God was poured on him. He was cursed, left alone, condemned. And when he was placed in the tomb, it appeared to Jesus' followers in that day like every promise he'd ever made turned out to be a lie. It looked like the kingdom had come to an end. He looked like a ridiculous failure. But a few days later, Jesus rose again. Unlike Eutychus, though, this was not merely a resuscitation. No, this was a resurrection. You see, Jesus didn't come back only to die then as he got older. Jesus has a resurrected body. He is the first of what we all will be. When Jesus returns, we all will be given new bodies, resurrected bodies, bodies that will go forever, bodies with no aches and pains or diseases, and more importantly, bodies and minds that are never susceptible to temptation again, bodies that will walk and minds that will live in holiness, fully connected always to the Lord. If you don't know this Jesus personally, his life is open to you. Do you believe this message I've just shared? Then if so, you can turn from your sin and turn to him now. If you have remaining questions, we'd be happy to visit with you after the gathering, or if you're online, you can text in a name and number to that Q&A phone number. We'd be very happy to follow up with you and visit with you and answer your questions about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you already know Jesus Christ, then the very means that Paul used to encourage the churches is the same means God would use to encourage you. Today, as you've listened to God's word, as you've sung, as you've prayed, we pray that you've been encouraged. That from the back of your mind, the truths of the gospel have now been brought forward to the front. That as you look at the coming week, and you think about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're filled with a new commitment, a commitment to love God, to love people, to encourage others, to share the truths of the gospel with Christian and non-Christian alike. We pray that you've seen afresh and anew how much God loves you and how much there is to be encouraged about, even in a very difficult time in human history. God has so designed it that the beginning of a week 
would be the assembly of His people, through which as we gather together, we are a foretaste of the gathering around the throne of God that we will enjoy in eternity with every Christian from every nation. You and I need encouragement to press on in holiness, in faithfulness, in obedience, in love. And the means of that encouragement is God's Word. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you would consider now as I get ready to wrap up, who would the Lord have you bless today with the truth of God's Word? Who do you know that God would have you speak a word of comfort, a word of truth, of exhortation, of encouragement? Who needs to be lifted up, stirred up? It very well may be that God brought you here not primarily for you, but that God would work through you to serve another. In fact, let's take a moment now in prayer to ask the Lord to guide us toward particular people that we could encourage in the coming days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word tells us the truth. And the truth, illuminated by the Spirit, is tremendously encouraging. Sometimes those truths are hard. Sometimes those truths confront us. But your truth, delivered through your people, is such a comfort and joy. It's life-giving. And we are living in a time in which discouragement seems present everywhere we turn. But we pray, Lord, it would not be present here. That here, as your church assembles, we would be tremendously encouraged. And as we go out the doors in a few minutes, we would go with a commitment this week, having been stirred up by you toward love and good deeds that we would receive comfort from the truths of the gospel and that then in that comfort we would comfort one another. Father, I ask that by your Spirit you would bring to mind brothers and sisters that need encouragement and that be it a text or a direct message or an email or a phone call or a knock on the door that we'd go out of our way in the coming days and that as we're blessed, we would be a blessing. That as we've been encouraged, we would encourage. The fact is that we all 
are prone to wander and prone to discouragement. And in your kindness, you have so designed your kingdom that the way we mature in Christ is principally by speaking your word to one another. Father, we've got a lot of room to grow here. In your grace and mercy, would you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.